Hello, this is Roger Atkins. You're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. Tune in to episode 3.19 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by TAS Gazex, an avalanche of solutions, and our good friends at 10 Barrel Brewing. Drink beer outside. With additional support from Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. This is it, people. The last episode of the third season of the Avalanche Hour podcast. And what a year for snow and avalanches it has been, with many western U.S. zones having deep snowpacks, with many historic avalanche cycles and a variety of snow climates. It's been pretty sobering to see pictures of tree cleanup in Colorado alone. And I'm reminded of large events every trip I make up Avalanche Gulch on Mount Shasta when I ski past the 20 plus foot deep toe of the debris from the Valentine's Day Avalanche. A big thank you to all the people that were willing to share their stories and experiences with the community on the show this season. And another big thank you goes out to all of the listeners of the show. Please continue to spread the word about the podcast and maybe you'll find it cools you down on a hot summer day to listen about snow and avalanches as you catch up on earlier episodes and seasons that maybe you haven't heard yet. Check them out. From the first season of the Avalanche Hour podcast, TAS Gazex has been a big supporter of the show, and they have always been a big supporter of the snow and avalanche community as a whole. JB, the crew at MND Group, a big heartfelt thank you for believing in this project and helping to make it the best it can be. I know you have a choice in your microbrew selection, and I urge you to choose the beer that helps this podcast continue to hit the airwaves. Ten Barrel Brewing is a brewery that has an embedded culture in the snow, surf, and bike community. What other breweries do you know to sponsor athletes, outdoor podcasts, and produce their own action sports movies? Check out the seasonal summer beer offerings and community events at tenbarrel.com. When Interwest Insurance sent me a check this season for the podcast, I scratched my head a bit about how insurance sales related to snow and avalanches. But during a conversation with my good friend Keith, he explained that his company is all about education of risk management. Maybe not so different from decision making in an avalanche train after all. Thanks to the good folks at Interwest Insurance for their continued support. The interview on this final episode highlights heli-ski guide veteran Roger Atkins. Roger got his start working for the Wasatch Powderbird Guides and has now worked for Canadian Mountain Holidays, or CMH, for over 25 years. At the 2014 ISSW in Banff, Roger presented his paper, Yin, Yang, and Yu, in which he presented some familiar strategic mindsets for an operational ski guiding setting. The mindsets that are tied to typical conditions can help steer operations toward a specific operating strategy. Selecting an appropriate strategic mindset has quickly caught on to become an integral part of many guiding operations and morning guide meetings and helps to drive how people are managed in avalanche terrain. 
Tune in as we hear about Roger's guiding career and how he suggests utilizing these mindsets in both an operational and recreational setting. Enjoy. Roger, welcome to the show. Thanks for making the time. I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. It's good to be here. I was hoping you could give us your background and kind of your career roadmap in the snow and avalanche world. Well, background, yes. The roadmap is more in retrospect or in hindsight than in, than in planning. Uh, really, my path through working as a professional in the avalanche field and guiding has been a series of improbable possibilities. Um, really, my education was in physics, um, and I have a degree in physics, but I never really worked as a physicist. I worked in different technical fields, but focused mainly on creating the opportunity to ski and slide down the hill on the mountains. And one thing led to another, and uh, I first entered the backcountry helicopter skiing in Utah as a guest in 1977. It was $55 for a half a day. So I could scrape that much together as a ski bum, and, and it was pretty exciting, and I thought I'd love to do that, but not could, couldn't come up with that kind of money very often. The next season, I, I would have been about 1978, I was uh, being a ski bum in Salt Lake City, and one day I looked at my bank statement, and I found that there was a mistake, and they'd put $600 in my account. I thought, well... That's their money, but they can't really charge me interest. I've got an idea. So I went helicopter skiing about four times that year, which was great. Uh, that summer, I returned the money to the bank. And uh, from then on, I didn't really have that kind of money to go helicopter skiing, so I started to learn about ski touring. And I ski toured a lot. I arranged my work schedule so that I was always available to ski on the mountain at Alta or a snowbird or in the mountains in the Wasatch backcountry, depending on conditions, and got to be fairly well known and also did some technical work for Alta ski lifts, doing software development related to avalanche uh, assessments. And through this, I got to be fairly well known in the area and it wasn't the career path at that time where you could just sort of go through training and become a guide. It was sort of, in, in the United States in particular, the question of regional preferences and who knew you and, and so at one point, Darwin Stoneman, who was the lead guide at Wasatch Powderbirds at the time, in the morning at Alta, he asked me if I was wanted to come up with the lift and go out and do control routes and he asked me if I'd have a schedule like that again next year. And I told him, well, sure, I'll have a schedule like that. What are you thinking? He said, well, sometimes we need somebody extra to come in and guide for us. Would you be interested? Of course, I said yes. And uh, a few weeks later, about 5 in the morning, my phone rang, and it was Darwin. He asked me what I was doing that day. I said, what do you want me to do? And he said, we need a guide. That was my first day of guiding. And that's been now almost 33 years, and I've guided ever since. First for about seven years with Wasatch Powderbird Guides, and then through circumstances, I uh, came to Canada and worked with Canadian Mountain Holidays for the past 25 years. Guide certifications were required there, and I was already somewhat experienced, but I came to Canada and took the certification exams there. And that pretty much brings us through to the day. 
All right. Where would you grow up? Well, I was born in California, but I spent my time in Utah and Colorado and California originally before moving to Canada. Yeah. Um, and when, so you were you were kind of part of the early days with Powderbird, yeah? How long had they been in operation when you started working for them? Well, they'd started in the mid or early 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, there had been some helicopter skiing in the Wasatch before that, but not a guiding operation. It was um, more just a guy that flew a helicopter. You could hire him to lift you up and get a run places. Uh, I don't know exactly how many years. I don't recall, but when I first skied with them in 1977, they'd been in operation for, I think, about four or five years. Okay. I was hoping you could talk a little bit specifically about Canadian Mountain Holidays and number of lodges, how many guides you have, how many guests or clients come through the, the doors there, because it's a pretty big operation, right? It is a big operation. There are currently 11 bases of operation. Some are more private areas that only bring a few guests, groups of 10 or so, or usually, or maybe two groups of that size. And this sort of standard model, which is more diversified now, has been in each lodge, uh, four groups of 11, so 44 guests would be a full lodge uh, in the standard model. But now there's quite a spectrum of different programs that they offer. Um, The number of skiers, we typically offer weeks skiing, although there are some other options now for shorter trips, mostly week-long trips. And it ranges in these days up around 5,000 to 6,000 skier weeks or skier trips a year. And there are a large number of guides from all over the world that work for CMH, um, between 100 and 130 guides at this point on the roster. So what are some challenges and and advantages for working for such a large operation? Well, that's changed over the years. Um, And of course it started, CMH started as the first helicopter skiing operation in the world in the Bugaboos in 1964, if I'm correct. And uh, originally it was owned by Hans Moser, the founder, along with some other investors privately held. And when I was working there in the early 90s, it first changed hands to being uh, owned by the helicopter company, Alpine Helicopters, that they contracted most of their work with, which was the first significant change. There was a lot of fear of change at the time, and people thought this would be bad, but I think it's been really a match made in heaven for a helicopter skiing company, because the relationship normally is that the helicopter company is contracted as a service provider by the guiding service, when we were combined into essentially one company, the common goals shifted in a different dynamic than, than a kind of a, a contractor basis, which was nothing but good for, I think, the entire operation, the safety, the efficiency, the guests, the, the communication all got much, much better. The company's grown and changed hands several times since. But I think one thing that's particular about CMH, it's a fairly large organization, but it's always been a rather amazing organization. And a lot of wisdom has gone into that. And I mentioned that there are 11 different bases of operation. So even though the company overall is very large, we function in smaller units, which really mirror the same type of experience or uh, environment that you'd find working in a smaller company. But there's another thing that makes a great advantage is because of being in the larger company, there are resources available in terms of money and logistics support that allow the company to really do things right 
in a lot of ways, and I have a lot of respect for how the company has handled things over the years, and it was a great benefit in the resources that are available to the operation for us to do our jobs and to deal with problems if they occur or to preempt those by taking action. Um, and the, I guess the greatest two assets, or some of the, I shouldn't say the only two greatest assets, but two of the greatest assets of CMH as a company as well, of course, are the people. That's what makes any organization. And it has always been, uh, there always have been a large number of uh, people that I have great respect for, that have a great deal of integrity and experience and skill. They have the resources to bring in uh, not only some of the finest guides from all over the world, but um, great training and advancement opportunities that they provide. Um, and another great asset that CMH has is the access to the terrain base that we work in, which is essentially a mountainous area roughly the size of the mountainous region of Switzerland. And that's, uh, of course, a tremendous opportunity that is unparalleled. And there are downsides of the size of the organization, um, but most of that doesn't really change much at the level that we see working in the individual lodges. But there are inherently in any large or organization some things that are a little more clumsy than they would be in a smaller organization, pretty well offset by the other things I've mentioned, I think. Mm -hmm. Really, I've worked there for 25 years, and if I didn't find it to be uh, a good environment, I obviously would have chosen to do something else by now. Yeah, it's, it's stood the test of time for you, it sounds like. So, Roger, you came out with a, a paper a few years ago that, was, that, that hit the community, um, I think, right at the right time. And you introduced the idea of a strategic mindset. I was hoping you could talk a bit about um, what went into coming, coming out with that paper and, and why you kind of came up with some of that. I'm sure it's fairly deep-seated in your heli-ski guiding career. Well, it certainly is, and I think going back a ways, I mean, my background was in physical sciences, and especially when I first started uh, ski touring a lot and dealing with avalanches and mitigating the risk of avalanches, I learned about the physics and science of snow and uh, tried to apply those skills and observation skills and everything, the technical information that you could gain. and. That was a great foundation, but it still left me with a fair amount of uncertainty about specific decisions. And I found that when I first started to work with people that I respected greatly, um, well-experienced guides, I thought, this is great because now I'll really see how they apply this. And what I really found quickly was that um, I tended to have more of that technical knowledge than most of the people I worked with, but they were much more competent than I was at making decisions, and I had to figure out sort of how that worked. And so I had a great curiosity over the years to develop my skills at making decisions, really, and being competent at that. And um, I noticed over time certain patterns that we were in the mountains so much under so many different conditions, and every day is essentially different, but there were repeated patterns and certain combinations of conditions and circumstances would be leading to a certain feeling about how, how you, to approach the day, about where and how you would like to ski, what information you would like to gather under those circumstances. And other than each 
day and each year ha having its own unique characteristics, there were still these repeated patterns. And I found that those were resulting rather to me sort of automatically that when I went in the mountains, I would have uh, adopted what I'd call a mindset, which affected my perception of what I would find desirable and what I would find uncomfortable. And I thought that if we were, rather than letting this automatically happen, and it's more than just conditions that feed into that mindset, it had to do with your personal well-being, your sense of fatigue or conflict or teamwork, um, other things in your life. I mean, there's a lot that feeds into what that mindset is besides just the actual conditions that you have. But still, there were repeated themes. And it occurred to me that if we were to actually acknowledge what familiar themes, some familiar themes that we would recognize, and deliberately communicate to each other that this seemed like an appropriate theme for the conditions, that it seemed to facilitate the decisions rather than trying to go through a detailed assessment of each and every small decision that we'd make, it would set a general tone. And it also facilitated the communication between us that it was very easy among the team to express how we were feeling about approaching the day or the, or the decisions during the day. So I tried to capture that in, in a paper and somewhat surprising to me really, um, a lot of people really resonated with that, those thoughts and put it into practice in their operations. And it's become commonly used in many ways uh, in many parts of the world. Uh, mostly beneficial, I think. Um, it's also in thinking it over, I did a lot of reading and research into the behavioral science of decision making and found that the information that I gathered there really supported the feelings that I had about using this as a device that was helpful in our decisions and operation. So, Roger, could you run through the some of the strategic mindsets that you came up with and some of the conditions that are kind of parallel to those mindsets? Certainly. So the, the basic construct of this is to... to uh, recognize, first of all, that it's an open-ended thing. There aren't really a fixed set of mindsets, but I wanted to identify for, to make it tangible and usable to some familiar mindsets. Mm. And it seems that it applies differently uh, depending upon the situation that you're in. For example, if you're working professionally in one area for every day, almost for many winters in a row, this is a different situation than if you're skiing recreationally and every time you go, it's likely to be a different place and you're intermittently going to the terrain, you're not there every day. So at first, I approached this from the point of view of expressing it, how it felt to do this in the professional context that I work in as a helicopter ski guide. And in that situation, we tend to start the season with a great deal of uncertainty as to what the conditions might be. So we are trying to assess, initially assess what's what's happened so far. What's the snowpack hold? And how is it distributed across the terrain? What are the avalanche conditions we're dealing with? So that's the context in which you would apply what I'd call an initial assessment mindset. And what you would do in response to that, how you would behave in the mountains is to choose to go to terrain which is very conservative 
very little unknown, very safe. The train itself is safe. And your desires at that time would be to come back with more information so that you could build that assessment in order to determine whether it's good to, uh, what, what type of train is good to use from there on. As you develop that sense of a baseline of what's going on in the mountains, uh, you may encounter a time when you feel that the decisions you've made so far are more conservative than necessary, that it's acceptable to extend into more aggressive terrain, more consequential terrain. So we would call this perhaps into a stepping out mindset. We'd say, okay, what we've been doing is fine, but we could probably do more. And that's a time when I start to see the terrain as having more possibilities, and I'm drawn to move into some places that are a little bit more consequential. And this could be rather cautiously and with a great deal of assessment of each specific slope, or if I feel that the pattern is well enough recognized and reliable and I can extrapolate what I know, I may tend to be drawn to go into terrain just based on its characteristics, not just on a slope-by-slope -slope basis. So it can be a very cautious stepping out or a much more uh, aggressive stepping out. And at some point, I'd find that I'd reach a, a, a place where I felt comfortable where I was, but didn't really feel comfortable to do more and didn't feel like we needed to do less, which I would then have called a status quo mindset. It says, what we've been doing is fine. Until something changes, I'm happy to keep in this, in this general vein of types of terrain that we're choosing. And uh, then perhaps a weather event would occur, typically some snowfall, some loading, some temperature changes, which would cause a need to reassess a little bit, and the first part of that would be essentially to say, well, something seems to have changed, so I feel that we should step back. It's time, I'm no longer comfortable to keep doing exactly what we've been doing, and you could step back very, very far. For example, if there's a big weather event, a large storm, you go right back to a very, very limited selection of terrain to start over. Or if it's just a smaller event, then you might just tone it down a little bit, step back a little bit, assess what's happening, and go from there. There were some other mindsets in that context that, that came up. One is in the springtime, again, the conditions change, and we, I called this a spring diurnal condition, spring diurnal mindset, where really you assess the degree of freeze overnight, and if the freeze is adequate, then you could ski in most terrain during the early hours before the thaw cycle starts, but when the conditions start to thaw, it's time to get away from avalanche terrain. And so then th that's the type of behavior that associates to what I call a spring diurnal mindset. Another one that we use is called, I call it open season or sometimes free ride mindset, which is where you know, there's a great deal of confidence that there is really very little in the way of avalanche problems. There's always some chance of small avalanches, but now we're almost into terrain where mountaineering hazards are more of the concern and you consider almost skiing anything that is skiable at that point with some caution regarding, of course, the potential for small avalanches or mountaineering problems. The other end of the spectrum is something that I called entrenchment. This is where you have a persistent weak layer in the snowpack, which you know that no matter how you assess this, it's not reliable to go into a more aggressive terrain without encountering the consequence of triggering unexpected avalanches. It's not easy to extrapolate the stability of specific slopes when you know the presence of persistent weak layers. And if they're particularly problematic, we'd go into what we call an entrenchment mode where we simply ski on a very small selection of terrain, 
maybe four or five different runs are all that we use, almost into moguls. And we don't even try to find information that would allow us to go to more terrain. What we really want to wait for is some external event which really changes the situation in the snowpack. Typically a big pineapple express, a huge load of snow and warm temperatures, which greatly stresses those layers and causes the weak places to slide and the ones that don't slide are likely have stabilized and then the whole situation has changed and we could reassess and go from there. So the approach is very different not only in the terrain that you would choose but in the information that you look for and how you use it to make decisions. So in a professional guiding context, you know, your strategic mindset is helping you and your guide team to develop your run list for the day, choosing that terrain based on your mindset. And I think this is totally translatable, even though it was kind of developed with the professional guiding realm in mind or forecasting realm in mind. Um, you brought about some ideas today at the Ben Snow and Avalanche workshop about how we can tie avalanche character or type of problem to these different strategic mindsets for the recreationist user. So hoping you could expand on that a bit. Yeah, certainly, although I should clarify just a bit, first in our context of run lists and strategic mindset, the strategic mindset is perhaps influential to what we would make as a run list, which is really a situation where we eliminate a certain amount of terrain from consideration as a team so that we don't impulsively make decisions to go there. And the other terrain that we uh, open would be open to guide, which means that not that it's open like a ski area in a ski area run where you would feel that it's safe to go anywhere, but that there are ways to assess and guide it carefully or to assess not to go there would be reasonable. So that's kind of the run list, but really the role of the strategic mindset comes more into this the on-the-ground decisions of how we actually approach the terrain and which parts of it we ski and how we communicate to each other in a very concise way how our feelings are to help us work as a team and between the different teams in the company and, and beyond. Now in the recreational context or at least in, in the context where I call intermittent in the terrain where you're not consistently there every day you don't really have the ability to adjust from a, a baseline to constantly say well we do a little more we do a little less you have to assess more completely every day and in that case, what I find is that the role of what I'd call the avalanche character, which is the type of avalanches that are likely to be in the mountains if avalanches are triggered, this is something which can be determined with a fair degree of certainty, that it's much more difficult to determine if any specific slope is or is not stable. But the type of avalanches that would be triggered in the mountains if they're triggered is actually a pretty easy thing to determine with a great deal of confidence. And the additional aspect of the avalanche character is that once you know that, even without knowing much more or any more about the relative stability of the snowpack, exactly how to manage that condition is more clear, meaning that the types of terrain where the problem would occur, the type of consequences if it is triggered, and the ways to work with it or mitigate it or to avoid it are, are pretty clearly defined by the type of character of avalanches that are likely to exist. So approaching the strategic mindset from a recreational point of view or an intermittent in the terrain point of view, my 
expression of that is to say, well, these are a different kind of familiar mindsets, and they're based more upon the type of avalanche character that you're dealing with, which now can be determined quite... It's generally expressed in avalanche bulletins in terms of the avalanche problem that is the type of the day. And this has several general types, which are storm and surface instabilities of dry snow, which would be instability within the recent storm snow, whether it's loose or slab-type instabilities. There's a differentiation there, but all of that would be in that surface snow. Or if it involves persistent weak layers, whether they're mid-pack or deep persistent weak layers, which are a different type of problem to cope with. Or if it's spring-type freeze-thaw avalanche cycles that are the predominant problem, which I've already mentioned in our professional context, it would work exactly the same recreationally. And it's quite easy to determine if that's likely to be the problem. Or if uh, you're dealing with some other types of things like overhead hazards, cornice falls, glide cracks, there's a lot more nuance that can be applied to it. But in terms of recreational strategic mindset, the, I think that the way I present that is that the starting point is to determine the type of problem you're likely to deal with, which may not be the same in all parts of the terrain. One drainage might be different than another or a different part of the mountain range, different elevations, etc. But that distribution is something that is also likely to be inherent in the type of problem that you're dealing with. So uh, and the big difference here comes between dealing with surface and storm instabilities versus dealing with persistent types of instabilities. And the main difference there is that the, the uh, storm-type instabilities tend to go through their evolution relatively quickly. And when the indicators that come from both uh, informal observations as you travel, the, the feelings that you get from your skis, cracking, whooping, these types of things, triggering of avalanches, ski cutting, small unsupported features, test slopes, those are pretty reliable indicators of the state of stability of that, in, of that problem. And when those consistently give you indications that it seems to be stabilizing, as well as the weather conditions indicate that it hasn't been stressed, within generally a day or a few days, or at most about a week, it's, you develop a lot of confidence that that instability is not uh, likely to be persisting as a problem. And so those that mindset allows me to feel much more confident to take that information and use it to, de to decide to ski on slopes that I don't know more about. The other side of the coin has to do with persistent instabilities, which are a completely different type of beast. And the problem with persistent instabilities really is that they are persistent, and as they persist, they become more and more difficult to determine when and where they might be triggered. And so in that case, it requires a different mindset and a much, uh, a very different approach where I'd say, I don't really like to rely upon the observations that we have in order to decide to ski into more aggressive terrain unless I have specific information about those particular slopes. Most often knowing that that particular problem has been eliminated because it has avalanched away. If I reliably know that, then it becomes a different modified snowpack on that slope. But with persistent instabilities, I like to try to wait as long as possible. And even after the conditions and indications all say that it's stabilized or is stabilizing well, 
I give it as much time as I possibly can because there's always will be those lingering pockets of instability which are often what cause the accidents in those persistent uh, weak layers. So utilizing terrain margins to, to combat the, that uncertainty as the persistent weak layer gains strength but still has perhaps some spatial variability? That's, I think, well put, yes. Keeping the margins more so than you would think are necessary. Um, so the more time that you can buy, it's not the best time to try to find ways to justify that a slope would be okay to ski um, unless you have very solid evidence, mm -hmm. which normally for us would mean that the slope has been highly modified because it's been pounded by skiers throughout that the, just the right time in that cycle. In the backcountry, there's often not enough of that type of compaction to really be confident in. It also would re be relying upon terrain, which simply is not really capable of producing avalanches that would be a problem. Um, and Or going to specific terrain where you have reason, good reason to know that that problem wouldn't exist in that snow. And not so much from digging profiles and looking at tests, because those are really only looking at that one spot in space and time, but more from knowledge that large avalanches have run on that layer and have almost certainly removed it, and that it hasn't been reloaded with a new problem. Mm -hmm. Well, Roger, I appreciate your contribution to the avalanche community with, with coming out with this, and um, I know that it's made quite an impact and it will continue to in the future. Um, I was wondering if you could recount a story of a close call or, or near miss or accident within your career that has been a pivotal moment for you. Well, sure I can. I guess for me, almost all of us that work in this field for a long time would encounter some forms of near misses in their educational moments. But I would go back to the very first year that I was working as a guide in the Wasatch. And one day, I'd gone ski touring up to uh, quite a large slope on a mountain called Gobbler's Knob, many of people in the Wasatch would know. And at that time, we, there was an obvious shallow storm instability where there were large, loose, dry avalanches that had been running naturally and had quite rapidly stabilized even during the day. And I went with some friends ski touring, and we went up to Gobbler's Knob and skied the main large slopes there. Um, with the sense that the problem that we were dealing with was the uh, loose snow instability, which appeared to have become uh, quite stable. And it was a successful day and nothing was wrong. However, in the next four or five days, nothing changed too much, but there was a very small storm, maybe 10 centimeters or four or five inches of snow with a slight east wind, which is a reverse loading for that slope. And the, I was then guiding helicopter skiing and we flew out to the same area. And when we came around the corner to look at that slope, the entire mountain had avalanched to the ground um, where we'd skied three or four days before. And a completely different type of avalanche, just being a completely deep, persistent slab avalanche, which would have been a size D4, roughly. It was really a large and impressive avalanche going far, far down the drainage, which gave me pause because it caused me to question my uh, decisions where I'd skied comfortably and happily on that slope based on a different assessment a few days before, which I then brought that up to my kind of the lead guide, my mentor at the time, Darwin Stoneman. I said, well, gee, I kind of feel a little 
odd about this that you know I had confidence in my decisions and I was yet obliviously skiing on top of this monster really and his response was rather matter of fact and he said that he figured that we probably skied over three or four of those every year and never knew it which you're asking what made this a pivotal moment for me this was I think one of the most important lessons that we can learn in traveling in snow and avalanche country which is that we certainly will make misjudgments and will ski over unstable slopes most often we will never get the feedback to know that it's happened it seems that for most people doing this regularly every four or five years people tend to encounter circumstances where the snow talks back and lets them know that they have been making a misjudgment and most often it doesn't lead to a tragedy but sometimes unfortunately it does but the recognition that in spite of our best efforts, our best skills, and our best assessments, and our best experience, we still have to give room for the realization that we are likely, not only likely, but almost inevitably will be making some mistakes. And I compare this differently to, say, rock climbing. In rock climbing, when first people start, they often need to learn to trust the system, to trust the ropes, to trust the protection, to trust the belayer. And they have a great sense of fear and mistrust in, in falling. But in time, they come to learn that the system is, is, worth, is, is reliable and gain trust in it and lose some of that fear. In traveling in snow and avalanche terrain, it's a little bit the opposite. The lesson that really needs to be learned is that the, system is, the systems that we have and continue to develop are the, the best we can be. We try to apply them the best we can. We try to develop them and improve them the best we can. But we have to learn to not completely trust them. What I mean to say there is that there is inherent residual uncertainty. Mm -hmm. There always will be. There always will be, in spite of our best efforts. Mm -hmm. And knowing that uh, in a visceral sense, is an important part of being a good survivor in the mountains. And uh, so that, that's, I think, is the, a very different lesson where, of course, there's possibility of failures with the protection systems in climbing as well. But for the most part, when applied properly, those are reliable systems. And whereas with snow and avalanches, in spite of the most diligent application of the best methods that we have, the residual uncertainties are still substantial, mm. it, depending upon conditions. Some conditions, they're not so substantial as others. But particularly with persistent weak layer problems, their residual uncertainties are uh, always with us. And that's the reason that the mindset that applies to those conditions is so different than the mindset that applies to, for example, storm or spring diurnal type of instabilities, which are much more reliably assessed. Well, I think that's all very well said, Roger, and I, I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show and, and, uh, and travel down to Bend, Oregon, for the first annual Bend Snow and Avalanche Workshop. We appreciate you coming down here, and uh, I think it's time to go have a beer at Ten Barrel Brewery. That's great. Thanks a lot. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and to be here in Bend. It's a great place, and it's nice to see the Snow Avalanche Workshop starting here and the growth of the Avalanche Forecast Center, and I wish everybody the best. I, I hope that the uh, comments that I have are 
thought-provoking for people and are helpful as you go forward and have a great time in the mountains. Awesome. Cheers. Thanks, Roger. Thanks, Caleb. Well, that's a wrap. I think this interview might be one to revisit once the snow starts flying again. I certainly have utilized a strategic mindset in both guiding and personal skiing. Call it a new ritual. Thanks, Roger. And thanks for such a great season. If you have feedback, reach out to me. The Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com is where you can hit me up. Rate and review the show, please. This is a free show to you. And if you enjoy it, you can help me out by taking less than five minutes to rate and review it on whatever platform you enjoy it on. I'm already starting to plan out the fall road trip interview tour. I'm planning on attending the Wyoming Snow and Avalanche Workshop in Jackson, as well as the MSU Saw in Bozeman. I hope to see you all there. If you have a story of a close call or an accident you think other people could learn from and want to share it, please contact me and I'll make sure we get an interview scheduled. If you have an idea of a topic you'd like to be discussed, reach out. Remember, this is the community's podcast, not just mine. I want you all to help drive the boat. All aboard. Big thanks to Mike T for the artwork. Many thanks to the musical artists that allowed me to highlight their sweet beats on the show this season. Grammatic, Grizz, Sunsquabby, So Down, Broke for Free, Schedule One Beats, The Polish Ambassador, Little Glass Men, Anatech, Poddington Bear, and Audio Binger. Tracks today highlighted Grammatic with Far Away Instrumental and Broke for Free with Juparo. Don't forget to follow us on the socials. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast. Have a super fun summer, everybody. And until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers. Cheers.